welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Yares. And I'm Natalie Dalzicki. Mike Flanagan has spooked us before at Hill House and Bly Manor, but his most personal and horrifying story takes place roughly an hour from the mainland on Crockett Island. The small fishing town of 127 people experiences miraculous events and frightening omens after the arrival of a charismatic yet mysterious young priest. And here to chat with us today about Midnight Mass is Libertarianism.org's own host of Building Tomorrow, Paul Matsko. Thank you for having me. And criminal justice reform activist and crochet extraordinaire, Zuri Davis. Hi, thank you for having me. So this series, this story, just like the sacred text that it owes a lot of its <laughs> plot beats and, and themes to, is, I think, and I think a lot of people would assume, ostensibly a story about forgiveness. What do you think it is actually saying about that theme? Is it enough? Is it too much? Is it misunderstood? Where, where does it end up by the end? It's interesting, right? Like there's a number of really crucial themes that are brilliantly weaved throughout the story. So there is a theme of forgiveness, right? It opens with, um, you know, spoiler alerts here. I guess this is the opening scene. So it's <laughs> the, our whole show is about spoilers whole, at this all, point. It's all spoilers. <laughs> but it opens with, uh, you know, uh, Riley, um, our ostensible protagonist, um, at least for for a while. Uh, he is uh, he's been in a drunk driving incident. He's killed a girl because of his um, bad decisions and his addiction. Um, and so it opens with his need for forgiveness. He keeps he's haunted by her specter when he goes to sleep. And then arguably in the end, when he dies in episode five, he finds that forgiveness. He sees her face in the, you know, in the seconds before her death. And so there, there is that theme. But um, it, it's interesting because it's like not necessarily quite as straightforward as this is just the story about forgiveness. It, there is an arc for his character. But um, I'm not sure like Aaron Green's uh, arc is about forgiveness. It's about it's about self-sacrifice. Um, she is kind of a Christ type in the story that she uh, cradles the vampire. But we're really just throwing all the spoilers out right here at the beginning. She cradles <laughs> the vampire like a lover to distract it as she slices its wings in order to save, well, the world potentially. I mean, the mainland from the vampire flying. Um, and, and she doesn't try to flee. Uh, Riley wants her to flee to take the canoe and go. And she stays explicitly like we're I'm you know, this is probably going to kill us, but we're going to try to save the island and save the world. Um, so it's yeah, I mean, there is a forgiveness through line in some of the arcs. But I wouldn't say the whole thing is necessarily about about forgiveness. Pretty much echoing what Paul said, um, I think probably the larger story is how we uh, rectify the bad things that happen in life with our faith. Um, so one thing I really appreciated was when Sheriff Hassan, um, who's the Muslim sheriff on an island full of Catholics, um, he's telling his son, like, miracles don't work that way. It's not like God preferring some people over, like, your mother, who was a very devout Muslim and, like, prayed until the day she died and still, unfortunately, passed away from cancer, I think, but it's very much, so that's like, uh, them trying to rectify like the bad things that happen. So I forget the character, but he's the guy who lives in the trailer. All I know is Joe, he, he had a beautiful cane corso, Joe. Yes. I cared so oh. much about the dog. I know. I was <laughs> so ready to fight. They always, <laughs> they always so kill sad. the dog first, guys. In every I, movie, I so every TV and that's show. Like, no, and it, it was really disrespectful to you. I was like, oh, turning this off. <laughs> um, but just like Joe's, uh, the accident that led to, oh, golly, all these characters so are escaping me. Uh, the Lisa. accident that led to her paralyzation. Um, and uh, just pretty much like everyone's dealing with like serious like they're dealing with life and it's really hard sometimes uh, when you are religious because it is like, okay, God, where are you? Aren't you going to swoop in? Aren't you going to like make this all better? Um, but as we kind of learn and as I personally believe God doesn't work that way and just rectifying like the bad things that happen and like how your faith um, 
kind of comforts you or like provides answers in those moments. Well, it, and to your point, I mean, Erin Green loses her baby and she's dealing with the trauma of that in what I think is the pivotal scene in the show, the couch conversation between her and Riley. That's her trying to process like, what does this mean? Is there a pr- or or when Riley sits down with Father Paul for the for an AA meeting and is like, um, Father, well, Father Paul says, you know, what do you want me to say? Is it that like everything works for your good ultimately? Like that's kind of hollow sounding. So it it, it kind of the the show wants to dispel the easy simple answers to why why life sucks, right? Like everyone's right. <laughs> going through something really terrible in their life like traumatic, terrifying, horrible. And they're all in their own way um, trying to grapple with that. Um, and so that, that, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's definitely, like that to me is, that's a through line that runs through kind of almost every story. Um, and some of them aren't capable yeah. of grappling with it. Bev isn't ultimately. She can't handle right. that. Yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. We'll talk about that. <laughs> I, I mean, but th- it just makes me curious. Like, and I, I don't want to say like, it's just about forgiveness. Like, because I, I, that is reductive. Yeah, but it is I in think. there. You're right. But You're there right. is, right. It's in there, but I, and I think part of it is less about, I mean, it's about forgiving the self and uh, for, it doesn't really grapple as much with institutions, uh, uh, which I think is, I mean, partially just because it doesn't seem Flanagan is really interested in that. And and that's fine. Um, I think we get a lot of that type of criticism specifically of the Catholic Church from other types of media. So I was shocked that there wasn't a little bit of it at least. Um, and, and so I was a little bit sort of wondering if that was going to come in. But – there is a there's a, a turn at the very very end when we get Aaron Green's monologue as she so is many dying, monologues. having just been. Imbr- <laughs> it, we'll talk about too how many, many monologues there many. are. Oh my god! <laughs> I was I've oh man I haven't heard that many Bible verses <laughs> in a row in many years. Um, uh, you don't watch pure flicks movies. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very obsessed. I just a quick asterisk. <laughs> I grew up evangelical at Church of Christ. Wasn't anything for a couple of years, then converted to Catholicism. And Whoa. I have such an obsession with like evangelical movies. You have no idea. They they're so bad and corny. It's like sci-fi movies. <laughs> when I tell you, Zuri, that Paul on this very call has been pitching Pure Flix films to I us yes! for this show for so yes. a year at least. Oh, you have yes. just made his yeah. day. And he's... We, we, need a, we need to do the God's Yes, I keep one. telling them to. Uh, <laughs> they need to. The second one? Oh, oh my God. Well, now like we have favorite. the guests yeah. for it. Great. So we'll uh, yeah. make it happen. Well, and it's, I mean. Yeah, yeah. I'll see you in a couple of months. There has been now. that, like, the pure flixification I don't know how, of Netflix. So, like, one of the interesting yeah. things about the success of the show is that, like, it doesn't get made in the pre-streaming era. Right, because it doesn't work as a film. He tried to make it a film, and then right, he, he did. was like 150 pages in by episode two, and he's like, "This doesn't work." But there's no way someone spends this kind of money on a on a religious miniseries horror vampire film. But now there's such a demand for content, and you can find a, a global audience that used to be niche, but now it's big enough that, you know, anything flies. I mean, South Korean child horror dystopian future squid game to (laughs) troll hunters in Norway. You can find an audience somewhere. And so this gets made. But what's interesting is Netflix is putting lots of bets down on like underserved religious audiences. There's that like um, uh, there's that camp movie that came out earlier this year. That's not very good, but it's like they sing. It's got Stephen Curtis yeah, Chapman yeah. in it. I'm diving yeah. in. Also Greenleaf. Oh, yeah. um, but I want to push back before it gets like, I want to push back and say that, save for a couple of parts, this is one of my favorite religious um, pieces of entertainment in a long time. So much so that um, by like the end of it, by the last episode, I was just like, I need to rewatch Silence. That is my favorite Christian movie of life. And this is very much, it's like very on the nose, obviously in a lot of places, but I think the conversations that it um, starts 
it's very much on that silence level for me. And I want to separate this. Sure. And I don't think anyone who comes to it, save for very, you know, a small group of people would come away with the same type of vibe. It's, it's not, it's on the nose, but it's not preachy especially like i said when you get to the end with aaron green's revelation about what death is and what life is and you get this sort of it's an interesting pantheistic cosmology sort of take like what especially from from two people who i i think I think it's safe to say are probably a little bit more religious than Natalie and I. What did you? I'm not religious, so this is (laughs) turn. Like I, I I was not expecting that of all the things. Well, I suppose the way I I process it because I'm a evangelical and um and I I think is that it's so one of the things like one of the the silver linings of growing up as someone who didn't feel very well represented in film and cinema. Because it's, and I still don't feel. I mean, like, pure flicks doesn't represent what I feel like either. Because it's all this like simplistic pablum. It's just this hollow, like, oh, the good triumphs and the wicked. It's like the God's Not Dead movie where the 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 anyone who doesn't accept Jesus gets like killed, hit by a truck, literally, or gets cancer. <laughs> you know the oh my god, you know. it's the terrible. American Christian martyr <laughs> complex when they're real Christian martyrs in yeah, other countries. Exactly. Yes, that's right. Yeah. And so like there's like that doesn't feel representative either. But like you grow up watching movies in which faith in a kind of I mean, especially Christian faith, but not just Christian faith. I mean, it's true for, you know, uh, for I think Jews and Muslims, too, is represented as this thin um, artifice, this window dressing. And it's just like, oh, we need a bad guy. How do we make him just immediately read as bad? Well, make him like a, a, a religious zealot. And it never goes – it's never more than skin deep. And they don't feel real. I mean they make make religious people bad. They do in Midnight Mass. Bev Keen is a horrible person. She's our main antagonist. She's worse than the vampire in some ways, right? Um, even Father Paul is – you know, he's this complicated – he has a redemptive turn kind of at the end or whatever, sympathetic turn. But he's this complicated – they all feel very real and deep and robust and human. So like – but here's the silver lining of not feeling represented in film and TV is that you get really good at reading between the lines and that extracting value from things, even though you don't see yourself in them. And not everyone gets that experience. I like there was one film critic who wrote for Vox where she's like, I don't feel represented in this movie. It's like not every movie you have to feel represented in, in order for you to extract meaning and something of interest and value uh, from it. So like, it doesn't bother me at all that like no one in this show is, is, uh, I don't know, an evangelical Protestant. Like I grew up with, uh, but that's fine. Like there, there's people there and, and the people, there are people of faith from across traditions, you know, there, there are, you know, arguably our most like traditionally religious person, the sheriff, um, you know, he's Muslim and like, he's this deeply sympathetic character. And that was, that resonated with me. Like the, the, you have authentic people of faith, represented and that's that's plenty so it didn't bother me at all i don't know about you zuri yeah so i will say the nothing bothered me in the show up until the last monologue (laughs) because um the reason why it bothered me was because it came from aaron and one it was extremely out of character for the way that she reacted to losing the baby because of the vampire's blood um, and like the way she spoke with Riley, um, it was just so like, it was such like a hard left turn of like, okay, you, like if Riley said that when he died, it would have made sense. But for her to say it, I was just like, okay, come on. Um, but one thing, I think maybe the reason why it, um, maybe it doesn't like bother me. It just like kind of saddens me a little bit. Because I know that Mike Flanagan, he has a very complicated relationship with Catholicism. And I guarantee for the reasons I stopped being Church of Christ. Had I grown up Catholic, it pro- like I probably would have been in Mike Flanagan's shoes. Um, but and you can kind of see uh, like where he misses like church tradition, like him giving such reverence to the mass in every single episode and him being true to the mass up until the Easter Vigil, 
and like purposefully going out of his way to show that it's disordered right. <laughs> by like changing up the the vigil um, and like what's supposed to happen. Uh, like you can tell that he really misses that part of himself. But I went through um, one of the things that he wrote about the show um, and just like to give some background. He was like an altar server, like went to mass all the time. Um, and then in college, started asking questions, started to realize he really didn't know as much about his faith as he thought. Like he, it wasn't his faith. It was just something that he grew up with, which is understandable. And like everyone should go through that. Like that should be encouraged. But the problem is, I think that Mike thinks that some of his beliefs are really antithetical to Catholicism. Yeah. And save for that last monologue which is kind of antithetical. Some of the other things he believes are not like they're the church also like teaches those. So I think maybe the last monologue kind of made me sad in that I feel like Mike thinks that he's very divorced from the church and that the church like won't accept him for who he is, which is understandable because a lot of Catholics are like awful people. You just have to be on Catholic Twitter for like two seconds to realize how <laughs> so many of us are. Um, but like the tradition of like the saints and church teaching, I feel like they really back up more of what Mike believes. One of the things I wanted to point out was when he does talk about um, or when Sheriff Hassan talks about miracles and he's like, God doesn't, God's not like a magician, pretty much. Um, in the article that Mike wrote about Midnight Mass, he was talking about his personal beliefs about miracles. And he said he doesn't believe in the way miracles are described in the Bible. They're not these big transformative things. They're like everyday things. So he talks about miracles of parenthood. Miracles of creation, of growth, of forgiveness. And it's just like, Mike, <laughs> there is a whole saint, St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, who believes the same thing. Um, so I included like one of her quotes in the show notes, but she has one quote that's like, everything is grace. Um, and it's just like her her whole, the, the whole reason why she became a saint was because she very much found the good in doing small things, not like these big transformative, like she wasn't a St. Joan of Arc character right. where she was like fighting in the military for like Jesus <laughs> and all that. Like she was doing small little things to show love and to be love. And it's just like, I wish someone had taken Mike aside and been like, hey, like you're not weird for thinking that. Like yeah. you're still Catholic <laughs> and it's fine. So I don't know. If he's listening to this podcast, like, <laughs> which he, he may, I don't know. But, like, Mike, you have a Catholic group that, like, believes you and, like, will accept you for who you are. And you don't have to feel, like, I don't know. It, it just, you you could really see, um, I promise I'm wrapping this up. You're fine. Talking forever. You can really see like his personal disagreements and kind of like discomforts um, in certain parts of the show, but it's just like Mike, like you're fine, <laughs> you're fine, you're doing great, buddy. <laughs> you're okay. You don't have to feel bad. I, I, I it's, it, it's interesting because like I, I had a very different reaction hearing the final monologue, and, and, and part of it's that you're right. It does feel a bit of a left turn if you just look at the character. Aaron Green's character and its development, it comes out of nowhere. But as a kind of, you know, autobiographical, Mike Flanagan's autobiographical exploration of of doubt and faith and, and whatnot, it makes a lot of sense. So on the couch, and they actually literally replay the couch conversation right. as part of it, right? She sits down as she's dying with Riley a second time. But on the couch, you know, they both have this different conception of what death and passage into the afterlife is like. And notably, I mean, this is, I think, if there is a core message, a religious message for Flanagan, it's a line from Aaron where she says, what happens to us when we die? And Riley says, I don't know. And I don't trust anyone who tells us they do. So it comes from this place of like, this is unknowable. And but Flanagan expresses a kind of combined 
hope that one or the other or both or whatever are correct. And so one is a, is a, is a theistic view. It's initially Aaron that it, and it's not a literal, like, you know, puffy clouds right. and angel <laughs> cherubs floating around, but or that angels it's that are not vampires. Connection, <laughs> angels that are not vampires, non-vampiric <laughs> angels. And, but that it's, it's, you know, this feeling of love, this presence, this connection with the divine and with each other, um, that a, a more theistic vision with the, with a pantheist or, or panentheistic vision from Riley, like we're all, we combine back to the universe from which we came. And this thing we call God is just the kind of universal connection. And so they both have this expression of hope that death isn't the end, that it's not meaningless, that it's just all done and gone, but that there's a connection to something greater beyond it. But then what's fascinating is that it, it switches them. Right. So when he dies, he gets a vision of connection, forgiveness, redemption in the five heartbeats between death and life on the boat as the sun rises. So she, he gets her her hoped for ending and she gets his. Right. And she almost, you know, completely directly restates some of the bits from what he said on the couch before. And I think that's cool because it's him saying he's not taking a side. He's not saying I'm, you know, I'm a theist. I'm a, a pantheist. Uh, you know, and, and the pantheist thing is very much like Carl Sagan, uh, our blue planet. Uh, it's, it's not a, it's not like a, yeah. Anyways, where, where it's like this hope for connection being part of something greater, but not expressed in like traditional religious terms. And, uh, but they, they, he flips them. I think that's kind of brilliant because it shows, first of all, it signals that his uncertainty as a director, he doesn't, he's not taking yeah. sides in this conversation, but he represents both faithfully um, and authentically and then sympathetically. So I thought that was, I mean, you're right. It does not make sense if you just look at her character development. It does kind of come out of left field. Um, it also doesn't make sense from a, like if you were trying to read this as a declaration of like doctrine or something, <laughs> it doesn't make sense either because one or the other in theory is supposed to be correct, right? Like in theory, both can't both be correct, you know? And we got a peek into both of them passing to the other side and they just, flipped and that's a logical contradiction but that's not the point of the of the passage so it's funny i read that and i i love it uh something else you you mentioned that that triggered a thought which was actually i think you said this earlier landry is that like it's a movie that's deeply spiritual and equally deeply anti-religious so think of the characters in here who, who look the best it's all the religious outsiders that's what i was gonna say with different forms of deep faith right like whether it's sheriff hassan whether it's uh, the doctor who is not religious at all, and but she is has a kind of a, uh, a a deep personal conviction in the power of of reason and science. Uh, so you have all these different outsiders who, or even Aaron Green, who has been not be welcome in your traditional Orthodox Christian circles because she is a she had a child out of wedlock. Was out yeah. of wedlock. Um, she's kind of a Mary Magdalene type character in this story so she's been expelled she would not be welcome uh in the traditional yeah oh is it okay yeah so she she would not be welcome in in traditional religious circles but she's still a woman of deep personal powerful faith that propels her forward so those are our sympathetic the people outside of religious establishment but people with personal religious spiritual faith whereas like yeah i mean organized church here man the catholic church as an institution does not come across so so <laughs> great in this in the midnight mass also on the point of the religious outsiders so i appreciated that as um i guess like a revert um because i do very much value like personally i really care about what people who have left the church and what who what people who are outside of the church have to say about us because at the end of the day it doesn't matter what we think about ourselves it matters like how society sees us and it's important to get their feedback to say hey uh there's like some serious uh pitfalls here you need to work on this so i really appreciated the outsiders. <laughs> um, I appreciated that little group, but also I did appreciate how they also weren't the only group that had a good ending. It was really nice to see their endings, um, but it was also nice to see how the parishioners 
save for Bev. <laughs> like you could really tell how for Bev, her faith was just um, a weapon that she used to keep everyone around her in line. Um, and she was just like kind of like a holy roller, <laughs> like holier than thou type of person. So her faith is not actually authentic. It's just a weapon for her. Um, but you see how the parishioners, like they accepted their fate at the end and they sang a song that was comforting or they sang a hymn that was comforting. And it was also nice to see how uh, just like that difference in they weren't like their authenticity uh, was on display. And I appreciated that they were able to find comfort in that. Can I do a riff on the Isn't song? Isn't it Titanic? The, Isn't the it the Titanic song? You have been yes. holding <laughs> in this thing about Nearer My God to Thee. He's been talking about this since he watched the show. So I am. I have purposely not asked about it. I say, right. let's wind him up and let him go. I even sang it in the or the first bit of it in a team meeting the other yeah. day. So you know, <laughs> it's true. I, I've had it on repeat on the on my speaker. You know, just playing the Oh My God to Thee. So, um. You can tell, and Flanagan has said that he grew up singing hymns, and he appreciated that. That's one of the things he kind of missed when he left uh, the church. Catholic and, hymns are trash. Well, <laughs> yeah, but notably, Near My God to these not a Catholic hymn. It's actually a Unitarian, I guess, so Protestant hymn. But, um, but you're not wrong. Like, my, my, I had a, one of my advisors was a was. He was Episcopalian simply because it was more Catholic than the Catholic Church in town because the Catholic Church used all like post-Vatican II like praise and worship songs, which he hated. So he wanted to go somewhere where they actually sang hymns. Anyways, that's a whole <laughs> But so Nearer My God to Thee is this – so it is it is fitting on every freaking level. Just the perfect song. So it's a real song. I mean, I sang it growing up in church. You, you might have as well. It's around the Church of Christ if they sing near my God to oh, me. But it was a great. It's very hymn heavy, and we definitely hit that one. <laughs> and it's it's a big funeral funeral hymn. They used to sing uh, like uh, at funerals of presidents when uh, McKinley was shot and died in 1901. They played it at his. They actually arranged that every. They would have all the churches around the country at the same time all sing that song uh, while his funeral procession was happening. So, like, it was a big – it was it, it'd be like – it's it was like a, what Amazing Grace is today that even people who aren't religious know the song. That was Nearer My God to Thee back uh, 100 years ago. The reason why most people know about it is because of the Titanic. Yes. The band played this on. This is my Titanic, Titanic moment. They, ah, much, much. Yeah, they, they, they play it. And it's this really moving moment because in the face of death, you know, all these people are going to die. They're playing the song Nearer My God to Thee to comfort and calm Jack could fit and on the door. Solace. Jack could fit on the door. And Jack, <laughs> Jack could fit on the door. But the door <laughs> wouldn't be buoyant enough, so they both yes, would be underwater. They should put the life jacket underneath the door. I watched the movie. <laughs> yeah, <that's> right. <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> and then they both could have survived. Thing. I didn't know there was a um, Mythbusters episode. Wow. I'm going to go back yes. and watch that. Yeah. Writing it down. We're pivoting the episode to Mythbusters. <laughs> to Titanic Mythbusters. That's what's coming. So on that level, I mean, it's, it's so it's a reference. I mean, he they they literally play it while he's getting scorched in the sun. And not, so it's a boat. There's a boat tie, a very literal boat tie to the Titanic. Um, but the the story, the message of it, if you actually go and read the lyrics. So like the, here's the second verse. Though like the wanderer, the sun gone down, darkness be over me, my rest a stone, yet in my dreams I'd be nearer my God to thee. So we have all the kind of core themes of of, of the show, like darkness and light, sundown, vampires, right? The sun's gone down, darkness is over me, my rest a stone, so in, in my dreams I'd be nearer my God to thee, dreaming. This show is all about dreams, it's uh, it's just yeah, dreams all the way down in this show. So we have Riley. This song's playing as in his final kind of confession. We have a lost man who's wandering through life, yet in his dreams, haunted by the girl he killed in the car crash, and then finds redemption in the five heartbeats before his consciousness fades as he draws nearer to God in, in this story. So it, it's fitting on a, a thematic level it, and the reference level. It's fitting on a message level. Um, but what's also interesting is it's, I don't think Flanagan or the Newton brothers responsible for the soundtrack were thinking about this, but the author of Near My God to Thee 
uh, Sarah Flower Adams was a Unitarian, a feminist, a pacifist, and a proto-libertarian. She mm. uh, wrote pamphlets for the Anti-Corn Law League. And it's not an accident because, like, all those things, feminist, Unitarian, pacifist, proto-libertarian, corn law, that they were all tied together. They were all criticisms of corrupt institutional power, patriarchy, established church, which meant the Anglican church back then. Uh, uh, it meant, you know, uh, the war mongering of, of the British empire, uh, the economic powers that choked off the economy and starved people that for profit, all those things were tied together. So in fact, um, the, the Anglican church, the Unitarians, part of the anti-corn law tie was them saying that the Anglican church had gotten fat and happy and was corrupt. And they were, they wanted to keep bread prices high because the church owned so many lands that were, you know, farmed like um, tenant lands in the UK that high bread prices were good for the church's coffers. So in other words, her critique, Sarah Flower Adams, the critique in Nearby God to Thee is, it was a critique of the established church in the 19th century being used in a movie that in many ways is a critique of, uh, to use air, um, I think this is Riley's phrase, churches spreading like ticks Mm -hmm. in one of his talks today. It's the same critique. And so it's very – it's it's anti-establishmentarian. What, think about Near My God to Thee. It's this personal relationship unmediated by institutional church or even by clergy between an individual believer and their God, whoever that may be. And so the song is – it's just – on every freaking level, it's the best use of hymn, hymnody in a TV show I think I've ever seen. <laughs> Bar none. So there the you go. Only use of- <laughs> well, kidding. every now and again, they'll do that. Have you, I, it's always a pet peeve of mine. Where they'll take like a hymn and slow it down and then play it over a creepy horror movie tra- trailer. Like, and it's a bunch of kids. Yeah. It's like a creepy serial killer looking oh at. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, I will say I will hand it to the people that did the score for this. There's power in the blood would have been too on the nose. But I, was, I was waiting for it. I was, I was waiting for it. I was like, it's going to come. You just watch. And then it never did. And I was like, okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll get no it to offer. Him. Come thou foul of every blessing. Well, I mean, there was the use of uh, another song they bring back a couple times. Uh, were you there when that you, were you there when they crucified my Lord plays during Aaron Green's death? Which again is fitting because it's this self-sacrifice, self-sacrificing moment where she gives her life and her blood, kind of very literally, in order to save humanity from the vampire spread. So, like, again, it's it's. I, I'm not sure you don't have to know the songs to appreciate the story, but if you know and you grew up singing those songs, it's like, oh, that's perfect. It's like it gives an extra layer. So, I have a very important uh, vampire-related question. Um, do you guys think this, like the vampire works in this film as the monster? Like I, okay, I, I'll, I'll expose myself here. Uh, I grew up on, you know, the vampire dramas that of the, you know, late <laughs> early or no. Yeah. Late 2000s. Just say Twilight. Um, Just say it that I, I didn't say, <laughs> I did not say Twilight. I was a Vampire Diaries gal. <laughs> anyway, the vampire Like, okay, first of all, you couldn't think that was an angel, right? Like, no one in their right mind was like, oh, yeah, this is an angel, right? I mean, yes, do we know what angels look like? Okay, but, like, the the angel in my dreams does not look like that, okay? (laughs) Also, (laughs) angels are scary as and I, every single time, they're like, there are going to be angels in heaven. I'm just like, do we have to be there? Because well, especially because they're they're even scarier than what would like they're has they're depicted in sacred texts. They're way scarier than what was in this show. They're like Lovecraftian. They uh, look like know. spiders with wings, and I'm not. Yeah, like <laughs> the whole point is that like they you know like we said they were you know they're filled with fear when you notice them because they're somewhat incomprehensible to us so there is there is a weird well, so like, was it true positive? to the text well then? on the on the uh the trail the, the poster for the movie it says the only lettering it, or besides midnight mass is be not afraid which is what the angels literally have to say to the shepherds that's a biblical that's a verse uh that when they appear to the shepherds to announce the birth of christ they have to say be not afraid because these guys are all effing fr- afraid they're all like oh what the ah, ah. you know they're freaking they're freaking out and like they have to be like no hey guys 
be not afraid. It's okay. We, we come bearing glad tidings of great joy because they're not sure. They could be about to be smote. They're expecting smiting. And they, they, you know, and, um, or yeah, yeah. I mean, to your point, Landry, it's like the descriptions of angelic beings in Revelation, man, these are some weird, weird, like combinations of beasts and humans and like thousands of eyes and they're freaky. They're not like cherubs. So a lot of this is touched by an angel disease. I blame oh, Roma Downey for like, <laughs> angels are just like people with Irish accents who come along and like. Oh, I'm all cozy and cuddly, and that's. I not... will say, I do think the archangels look normal. So, I, there are different types of angels. Oof! Wow. Okay, <laughs> this is. <laughs> there are different types of angels. I think the archangels look normal, um, but I don't want to mess this up on the conference. So, if this is wrong, you can blame my poor catechism, catechesis, whatever. Um, apparently, there are only like a handful of archangels, though. So, the cool-looking angels, there's only like a handful, and the rest like creepy okay. <laughs> so, yeah. well the, to your to the your your point natalie i think it's so it's interesting what's going for, first of all we can know father paul when he encounters the angel is in severe late stage dementia right. or alzheimer's that i made that so yeah. like it's easy and then he wants to believe it he's motivated and there's a commentary in here about people believe what they want to believe and they use religious texts to parse out the little bits that let them believe what they want to believe and that's a that's, you know, how faith is corrupted, I think, is one of the themes of this of the show. So he does that very actively. But in terms of I mean, the, the cool thing about the angel is that it is so Christians just historically Catholic, Protestant, whatever. They love to think about typology, looking for Christ types and antichrist types throughout Christian history. And so we have here um, we have here a Pauline story. and It's very explicit. This is right on the surface. Where does Father Paul get lost? I mean, they call him Father Paul, and he used to have a previous name. Well, Paul was Saul, then became Paul after he had a vision of an angel. Mm -hmm. Where? On the road to Damascus. Where does he encounter this tomb? It says it in the show, on the road to Damascus. So it's like- he's blinded by the storm, like he can't see. Oh, it's all all that. And where does he go to find this- this, you know, this being, this angelic being, it's a, it's a tomb, but the tomb isn't empty. The tomb is filled. And which it's, is, and he talks about the stone being rolled away so that he can go inside. Yeah. Oh man, it's, it's all there. So like, again, you get Mike Flanagan, he knows this. He like, he grew up with it. He, it's impressive in terms of like, it just shows his deep knowledge of the material. So some of it too is like not meant to be taken super literally, but more as like metaphor. I mean, he's playing on the level of, as far as the angel itself, it's like I think it's interesting that the that our 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 vampire angel at first I thought it was just going to be like magical realism. It doesn't we don't know right. whether it's supernatural or just some sort of like creature that existed that people thought that is like the source of legends about angels or something. But it's kind of besides the point because like the real villains in our show, like. As far as a villain, he's the angel's kind of in the background most of the time. The real villains are us. It's Bev Keen. It's Father Paul. It's the, their parishioners who do horrible things. We're the real villains of this, the antagonists of this show. And I think that's that's fun. Yeah, the, I, you the, know. So the vampire acts more like an animal yeah. more than anything. He attacks Father Paul because he basically goes into his den in the desert and then he, you know, saves him or whatever. I don't know if we can talk to, you know, his intentions yeah. as a vampire <laughs> to, to that. But then we I don't think as far as I know that, you know, he was going to go with Father Paul. He didn't, like, convince Father Paul to take him back. He, Father Paul shoved yeah. him in a trunk and dragged him from the cave. Like, how, first of all, did the vampire come with him and then was like, put me in the trunk and, like, walked with him to his hotel and, on American Airlines. and like, checked out of the Best Western and, with him? And yeah, and then was like, "Don't worry, I'll ride in the in the trunk when we get there." Or what? Did he have to like fight yeah. this vampire and be like, "Get in the box"? <laughs> like, I, it just I don't get that. Yeah, and then he um, does everything. But, he's, but asked. he's acting like an animal. Well, yeah, so he's he's literally just like lashing out, and he's bestial in the way that he interacts with everyone. Everyone else with intentions takes that as an excuse to do things as they see. Bev goes to her logical sort of. Uh, uh, apocalyptic death cult Jim Jones and <laughs> Father Paul. Literally. Yeah. 
And and Father Paul, you can see he was like sort of he wanted to bring this gift to people, but it he wasn't quite sure how. But Bev's wheels are, you know, they're always spinning and stuff like that. So like Paul was saying, people are taking their intentions and, and sort of using this as an excuse to justify their means. So I want to say very much one thing I appreciated about, <laughs> like, when you watch it, you're just like, okay, clearly that's, like, a vampire. Right. <laughs> like, everyone yeah, should be yeah. able to see. Um, but uh, one thing I appreciated was that was a very, um, it, it was a very, like, obvious version of some of the smaller ways they were doing that. And um, one thing this show reminded me of was um, how people quote First Corinthians 10, 13, um, so I'm just going to try to like summarize it real quick. Not going to like put y'all through Sunday school, <laughs> but basically um, it's a verse about temptation. And it's basically saying like uh, God will always provide a way out of temptation. No, no temptation is like new and won't overtake you. Um, but for a lot of times, one like conversation I've been having with like a lot of people um recently was how a lot of Christians think that verse is about suffering. So anytime someone's going like the loss of like a child, a spouse, like serious mental health issue, like just something that's really, really big and hard to comprehend. A lot of, at least here in America, a lot of Christians are just like, oh, well, God will never put you through anything that you can't like, uh, that you can't handle and he'll always provide a way. And it's like, there's always going to be meaning for things, but it's like, well, kind of not really. Like sometimes things just happen and they just are as they are. And our relationship with God is not so that like, like he's probably not going to swoop in and be like, Oh, like here's a miracle. Like you'll just get out of it. Like some people suffer for life and that's just a reality. And our relationship with God is not, for him to like prevent us from suffering. It's not like a lack of like, Oh, you didn't pray enough. You didn't have enough faith. That's why you're going through this bad thing now. It just is. And it like every single time they were talking about like, uh, like the miracles, like the healing and all that stuff. Like I just kept on thinking about that verse and how like American Christians were just like, Oh, well, if I'm faithful enough, like God's going to save me from, like suffering and just like, no, that's about temptation. <laughs> like suffering is a very different thing. And I appreciated how um, it was just like the, when people were clearly assigning this meaning to the vampire, it was just like, that was like a very much like larger version of the small ways that we kind of like twist scripture just to like make ourselves feel comfortable which is obviously very dangerous because if that's not how God works then like it ruins our faith when God doesn't perform in the ways that we expect him to well and there's this like um because they do that at I mean Mike Flanagan shows that like at every level on on that level you're talking about uh, Zuri but then also uh, that whole conversation about uh he actually literally talks about there's a new covenant so Father Paul's up there preaching and he says, look, you know, it's been Ash Wednesday. Uh, now it's it's going to be Easter Sunday. And like and there's this whole conversation about wearing the proper vestments that he wears. He wears the golden chasuble. I had to look this up because day. I had I was like, what is this dude referring to? Which you're going to yeah, <laughs> tell us what I've, that means. Sorry. I've censored. OK, so liturgical colors. Love them. <laughs> <laughs> liturgical colors are a big deal. Side note, I really want to meet the Pope one day um, because I'm like, I just really want to wear a black veil and then teach everyone about like the difference between like black veils and white veils. So audiences with Pope is a <laughs> whole thing. Anyway, liturgical colors, they're very important. For ordinary time, you wear green. So he was supposed to be wearing green. Then when Lent starts, um, they're different colors. And then each Sunday has different colors. So there are three purple Sundays and then there's one Godet Sunday. It's pink, but priests will be like, no, it's Godet because Catholics are extra like that. Um, it's pink. But uh, basically it was like a big deal that he had the wrong colors, but I have since confirmed with several seminarians, you can wear gold if like a green is not available. So it was technically the wrong 
investment for the show's purposes, but apparently that's allowed in well, Catholicism. So what's okay? So that's interesting. But the it to me, but the um, it ends the climax of it is Father Paul. Um, and there, so that's interesting because, like, uh, as a Protestant, unpacking the particulars of the mass and what's going on there was like beyond me. So I'm, I'm interested to hear you oh, talk no. more about it's that. Oh no, it's super, the, super like I was just like, am I watching a live stream mass? Like yeah. some of these <laughs> episodes, I was like, this is going yeah. on. Yeah, I was like, it's ten minutes fast. Like I already did this one. Somebody. Well, it was, certainly wasn't a Baptist church because they would have been passing that tray like a bowl of chips in a Tex-Mex restaurant, <laughs> That's and right. uh, and they weren't doing that. It was much more structured than that. So we where's do it my casual. Little, where's my little cup? That I pull out and I put the right, empty right, cup. Where's my Welch's? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> With the little bread on top. Yeah. Yeah. No one's mistaking uh, Welch's for uh, blood. No. You couldn't slip in the vampire blood that way in the Baptist church. Catholic Baptists are immune wine. from vampiric angels. Catholic wine is really fruity. Well, it depends. Each church gets to choose their own wine, but all the wines I've tasted tend to be like a little sweet. So I'm just saying. Wait, like you. Know. They get to choose the house. <laughs> Wait, red. so can, I, I, <laughs> that's awesome. I'm gonna get in trouble for that. I am curious where we were going with with the vest because I I wasn't sure what the significance was. Like that went right over my head. All of that is fueling. I mean, like even though I don't know the particulars, it, it, it matters on Easter, which is the big day. Christ is risen. The faith is real. It's the culmination, like from death to life. Ash Wednesday is lamentations and sorrow over sin. Easter is rejoice for the Lord is risen. Um, he declares a new covenant. So it, this is maybe a little in the weeds here is that like, you know, there are, there are two covenants, a covenant of work, a covenant of faith. And we're supposed to Christians believe we're still in the second covenant right now. And we're waiting for a third covenant, which will be the return of Christ. That's the new Era. Think when you hear covenant, that's a very particular thing. With, not worth unpacking here. But think <laughs> like new era. This think like to new a Scott era. Hahn discussion. Real quick. So <laughs> he, when he says it is a new covenant, it is like he's saying the Lord has returned. He is this messianic figure in that moment, and we have a return of a divine being bringing a new word. And so it matters that all the mass gets disordered or reordered, depending on whether it's a good or a bad thing. You know. Uh, gets reordered there at the Declaration of the Third Covenant. It's like saying this is a new age for religious people and for the church. And so it's a big deal. It's like a moment. He's actually declaring heresy, I guess, I suppose from a traditional Catholic perspective. But it's all done so cleverly, like using the actual elements of the mass and the vestments to signal that change. Man, that's some like profound insider knowledge stuff going on. No. So I just want to say that actually was my favorite part. So – the Easter Vigil is my favorite service, excuse me, it's my favorite Mass of the entire year. Um, like, the Easter, oh my gosh, I can't even describe, like, it is so beautiful. Uh, one year, I got to spend it with a bunch of nuns, and they have, like, this special thing. They'll, like, walk into the church in, like, dark robes, and then at the Gloria, they'll, like, take them off and reveal, like, their white robes underneath. And then what lay people do, we, like, process into a dark church with candles and then at the Gloria, the candles go out, the lights come on because like Christ is risen and all that stuff. So one thing I really appreciated was like in the beginning, I was just like, why is this so detailed? Like, why are we watching like a whole mass? <laughs> and like, why are they like focusing on all the different elements of mass of which there are many elements. But then when you get to the Easter vigil, it's something simple that they do. So they process, which is proper. But then after the procession, they don't do any of the Glorias. Or they don't do the Gloria. They don't do any of the readings, which there are seven readings because you have to go back to like in the beginning one. It's like all like the big church readings. They don't do any of the readings that go straight to the homily. And they didn't do that in any of the other episodes. And I remember watching that and being like, how dare they mess up the Easter <laughs> Vigil? Like, you were so faithful to everything and you're messing up the Easter <laughs> Vigil. But then when you watch the end of the episode, it's just like, oh, like you see with that tiny detail, they like messed it up because it's essentially like it's Father Paul's thing. It's no longer yeah. Catholic Mass. It's whatever Father <laughs> Paul and Bev and this vampire are trying to do. So I thought that like when it happened, I was just like, oh, that was amazing. I just have to ask, 
What did everybody else think of this terrible age makeup that they oh put? Oh my god, it was that so woman bad. In? What? Okay, because I'm watching this right, and I'm seeing this woman first scene, and I'm like, like "That's a young like lady." First episode. Why did they do this? I was so I was like, "She's gonna get younger," um, or something like that, or they're gonna flash back a lot, or something like that. I didn't know the intention, but I was like, "It was that's like a Mrs. Young person, and They're gonna like that's what it felt like, right? It was absolutely, <laughs> um, and and I'm like, "Why this whole time?" But I hadn't caught on to it until we get to the Monsignor in in the Holy Land and he's doing his whole thing and he, you know, gets revealed to be Father Paul. And I was like, oh, he was the, because I saw his makeup looking really bad too. And I was like, this is messy. What are you doing, Midnight Mass? <laughs> and and then they removed it and I was like, okay, so she's also young. Why? Because the thing is, was the was the actor who played the Monsignor the same actor who played Father Paul? Or was it a different I person? So. Was, okay, because if he not... was the same, why was Bev's Bev's different? Because if they're gonna use the same actress or actor to play the sort of father and daughter and the same person, but then why not just why not just <laughs> cast older actors and actresses? And you're just gonna justify it textually anyway. It doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so we all wear glasses. I can see that. Maybe my prescription is messed up because I didn't even notice it was makeup. I thought it was two different actresses. I have a crappy TV. <laughs> well, I, I actually think I think sh- I think the women are definitely different actresses. Okay. I thought that it might have been the same one at first, but I, I think they are the same. I don't know about the Monsignor because his was. I think we just didn't get as good of a look yeah. at him. So, but either way, it was why so would bad. they? If it was the same one. I, I get it, but they obviously, it wasn't. And then if it was different actors and actresses, why would you even do that? Just guess someone older. Just an old person. I don't get it. <laughs> it was really bad. I'm I'll... sorry. I'm going to rant about this. It wasn't even a question. Wait. I just wanted validation. Wait, I, question, I just though. wanted people to be like, yeah, you're right. Um, and this is a, <laughs> you're right, this Landry. This is a good question to end on. You're right, Landry. Always right. That's not true. <laughs> don't ever give me that. <laughs> no, I know. So... I and I'm still trying to figure this out. What what did we think of the ending? I think like the ending kind of like ruined a little bit of the show for me because I thought it was too like happy. If that makes sense. Everyone dying is happy. No, but like <laughs> except for two kids. No, but it was like oh, like I mean, from my perspective, the so the assumption is that the vampire is dead, right? And he's not going to like fly to the yeah. mainland and you know go infect other people right because the girl loses feeling in her legs but like there was i felt like there was a lot more you could have done with that ending than just like having them drift off in a boat to like the sunrise yeah also (laughs) like i i like uh, lisa is a really interesting character and i like that when they go to joe's trailer she gets the gun and is like come on and warren is the one that she's like dragging along with her it's like this very subtle subversion of like you know they could have very easily had him be like the masculine kind of like i'm gonna save everybody trope but she's like no i'm the one that is gonna (laughs) do this and he's like is everybody gonna be okay and she's like let's just go but why warren like there's you get barely anything from him as a character he's what like one of the characters we start with and then he's kind of forgotten yeah until the very end pretty much so that Maybe. was the thing i had an issue with <laughs> not not to sound like an English teacher about this but maybe it's like an Adam and Eve type of thing where it's like they can start over like do things like take the lessons that they learned there and start differently I think that's a totally interesting and yeah, valid interpretation for sure. Well, there's that. I mean, so it, it's interesting. I mean, Lisa in general. I mean, we again talking about the Christian typology. Like, what what happens when a new Messiah comes? He does miracles, and if you in the Revelation talks about your old old men and young people will will prophesy. And so we have that kind of literally here. We have the Monsignor, and then we have the young people who are the first to believe. Monsignor is the first to believe. And then, but who also early believes Lisa, she's declaring prophesizing. So you take that Christological anticipation and turn it into an anti-Christological interpretation. Same thing is there. So there's an element which, you know, her, so the signs and wonders are going on. She can walk. It's the first big miracle. Of course, the, the actual Jesus was 
you know, the, well, you know, if you believe it, what was doing miracles like causing the lame to walk again and the blind to see. Um, so it's it, it's all part of that typology thing going on. But then what's fascinating is if there one big takeaway Mike Flanagan wants to leave you with, he wants you to be skeptical of organized religion, but at least like filled with uncertainty about the value of faith itself. But the other thing is that he wants you to be suspicious of signs and wonders, you know, be, be wary of vampires coming, bringing miracles. And so what's fat. And he actually literally has someone say something about that. My faith isn't about like, I don't believe in miracles and that kind of, you know, BS. It's it's something else. Yeah. Yeah. And so at the end, what's fascinating is that she says, I can't walk or I can't feel my legs or that final line and kind of smiles. So it's a, it's an, an inversion of what you'd expect, which is like, Oh, wasn't the miracle, the good thing? No, the removal of this false miracle, that's the good thing. And so there, there's a commentary there. I think about like about our expectations, our desire for signs and wonders and which lead us astray because it leads us to, you know, not question the source, the vampire in this case, or not question the cost or not question, you know, what it's going to do to my community or to my family or whatever. And so Flanagan wants us to be kind of a little bit. And so he ends on that note, which is kind of cool. But I think I like this Adam and Eve idea that they're yeah, the, I didn't think about that either. the land. Interesting. It's also possible that like the actual kid is Mike Flanagan, because again, like Mike Flanagan grew up as like an altar boy <laughs> and like all these things are happening around him and he's just an observer and like he didn't get um like he wasn't critical about his faith until he was much, much older. So it is very possible that like he sees himself as like, I'm just on the side, like watching these things happen and then I'll take whatever lessons I need to. I also thought it was uh, worth noting that like they're both like young, right? They're both like children. Um, I thought it would have been kind of odd if like it was it was like a parent child duo, like if the um, like if the sheriff and his son made it or like I feel like that would have been a little bit odder. Also that they were both like heavily involved in the church, like had someone like we were talking about from like the others made it. It would have been I think their story arcs wouldn't have made as much sense. Um, and one shout that I, I think that I agree with that. It would be a little bit weird if it wasn't the kids. But the um one the final note. So you notice they sing, you know, nearer my God to the and they end on a nearer. And then it just hangs. They don't say to thee, which again fits with the theme of like Mike Flanagan's not he's not he's not saying theism's correct. He's not saying pantheism's correct. He leaves that ambiguous, just like the message of the movie, for you to make of it what you will. Nearer to something, and we don't know what. So that's how he has them end, which is, which, again, every freaking detail. I just want to asterisk really quick and say that one thing I think I really – I appreciate a lot of things about my faith, and I am happy to be Catholic now. Um, but uh, one thing I appreciated was when I was growing up in the Church of Christ tradition – it's very much like if you die as anything other than Church of Christ, you're going to hell, period. There's no like, we don't know. Maybe God will take mercy on their soul. They're just like, no, if you're not Church of Christ, like that's it. You're not saved. And one thing I appreciate about Catholicism is that it is very much understood that there are different paths to heaven. Catholicism, Catholics believe that's the best path but perhaps it's not the only one. There are different types of baptism. So for example, there's like a baptism by like blood, which is like martyrs who aren't baptized, but died for like the cause for Jesus. There's like, a, I feel like there's so many different um, things of like, this is what we believe. And this is our faith about the afterlife. But we also believe that like, we don't know. And like, it's very possible that, God calls people in different ways, and maybe that way is not Catholicism. My RCIA teacher actually um, told that to me one time. He was just like, hey, if you go through RCIA, you think God is calling you to be to, to serve him as a Lutheran, that's fine. This is just to teach you what Catholics believe. And there's one little part, I, I promise last thing I'm going to say, there's one little part of um, the Chronicles of Narnia and I really our last pivot from C.S. Lewis. Chronicles of Narnia. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> so C.S. Lewis, he never made the jump to Catholicism. 
But he was, you can tell where he's very inspired by Catholicism, despite still being Anglican, I believe. Um, and there's one little part at the end in the last book where um, one of the Telmarines make, tell, tell, oh my gosh, I feel like I messed that up. One of the Telmarine, Telmarines <laughs> makes yeah, yeah. it to heaven. And the kids are like, Aslan, like, what is up? <laughs> like this guy, like he, why is he here? And Aslan's like, well, he served like his religion well and like he like he serves um like his beliefs well um so like he made it and it's just like I love like that's so Catholic <laughs> and I love it so much and kind of I I think I just really enjoyed like Sheriff Hassan just so much um because maybe this is like a little Unitarian too of me but I really appreciate him being like faithful until the end in his religion. And I just appreciated kind of like the understanding of like uh, the different paths understanding. So that just made me really happy to see all of that. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop the letter N, lock with an E, like the philosopher, pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by Natalie Dowzicki. We're a project of libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.